this week's edition for the Wise Up Podcast. This is your host, Ezra Siddiqui. As a reminder, Wise Up is my platform to educate the Muslim and South Asian community about local Texas and national politics. You can find my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or hear them every Tuesday at 1 p.m. on Radio Azad. You can also follow me on social media, such as Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can check out my website, which is www.wiseuptx.com. If you want to find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, my handle is either WiseUp or WiseUpTX. Remember everyone, let's become educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. So today's podcast is called Newsmageddon. We had a variety of news happen this week, it was a lot of it, and we had two major Supreme Court rulings, and we also learned about Brexit, which happened in um, Great Britain. But first, let's start with the local news of the week. So according to the Texas Tribune, three weeks before Texas officials planned to slash funding for a program that pays for speech, physical and occupational therapy for children with disabilities, the Democratic Party and the Texas House are asking the Obama administration to intervene. The letter comes more than a year after state lawmakers decided to cut $350 million in state and federal funding from Medicaid, the public insurance program for the poor and disabled that covers pediatric therapy services. Many in-home therapy providers have said the cuts will amount to a roughly 20% across-the-board hit to their revenue, forcing them to close down and stop treating needy children. According to State Rep Donna Howard from Austin, she states that if these cuts are implemented as proposed statewide, it is estimated that 60,000 severely disabled pediatric patients could lose access to medically necessary services. The Democrats' letter says that Texas will submit a plan to the federal government as soon as June 27th about implementing the Medicaid cuts. They hope that federal officials will scrutinize that plan expeditiously and take steps to ensure no child loses access to therapy providers, according to the letter. To my listeners, I want to say if this is something that is important to you and that you, your heart you know, reaches out to these people, this is a time that you contact your local representatives and ask them to support this cause or to ask them what they're doing to ensure that these kids get the medical attention that they need. In other news, if you remember my segment from last week, Veepstakes, um, Julian Castro seems to be climbing higher on Hillary Clinton's um, Veep list, and there have been a lot of news outlets that are starting to produce a lot more articles going a little bit more detail into his life and his experiences. So if you see that going around on social media or in your news outlets, that's something to look out for. It's a very interesting thing to note. The Democratic Party is hoping that this will be a way to introduce Secretary Castro in a new light and as actually a prospective uh, vice presidential candidate. The Texas Tribune reports that the youngest Texans appear destined to make the state dramatically more diverse as the white share of population drops. More than two-thirds of Texans under age 19 are non-white, according to new census figures. And I'm not sure if you remember listening in previous segments, you know, I've really talked about how Texas eventually will become a minority-majority state, and that's really going to shift the dynamics for future elections and and how Texas is viewed as a whole. And that's why this is the time to really start investing in becoming civically engaged and politically involved because 
Texas's dynamic is changing. So this is the time that we can really get out there and start laying the foundation for our community so that as our community grows and as Texas's population is changing, you know, we have our foot in the door to make sure that our voices and our opinions are heard. And in other news, we also have Senator Ted Cruz, who is the senator from Texas, our state. He will be holding a hearing on the cover-up of Islamic terror by President Obama's administration. And according to conservativereview.com, Senator Ted Cruz, who chairs the Judiciary Subcommittee on Oversight, Agency Action, Federal Rights, and Federal Courts, will conduct a hearing investigating the willful blindness on the part of the relevant law enforcement agencies to domestic Islamic terror networks. The subject of the hearing is willful blindness, consequences of agency efforts to de-emphasize radical Islam in combating, in combating terrorism. And according to Senator Cruz, he says that President Obama's politically correct reluctance to attribute the terrorist threat we face with radical Islam hobbles our ability to combat it by discouraging counterterrorism agents from taking radical Islam into account when evaluating potential threats. Now, I didn't get to discuss President Obama's speech where he actually addressed the radical Islam remark and how the way that the president feels and the majority of the Democratic Party feels is that it's an unnecessary term and that it doesn't need to be used and it doesn't really change the primary objective in attempting to find and get rid of the terrorists. And I am very appreciative of the fact that President Obama has stated that these are people who have perverted the religion of Islam and you can't put the name Islam in there without having people make a very negative assumption about it. I think it is sad and unfortunate that Ted Cruz is going out on the slim, but it's not unexpected given the way that we've seen in his presidential campaign. And... I think he's also woefully unaware of the fact that the majority of Muslims in America reside in Texas. And he's probably probably unaware of that merely because of the fact that we haven't been a vocal community and we haven't been getting out there and becoming civically engaged and involved. And I know that I've been saying this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. Like This is a prime time where this is what we need to do is we need to get out there and we need to start doing something about it. And even if that means calling Senator Cruz's office and letting his office know that, you know, we're not okay with this. Sure. It's not necessarily going to change his mind, but at least they're understanding and going to start realizing that, Oh, this community is out there and they're actually doing something about it. Because while this hasn't made major headline news, it's still out there in the news and it's being almost, you know, not reported on and almost undercover. And so that's why it's these things that, that we need to start paying attention to and actually enforcing some action. So that is the news from Texas. And now I'm going to move on to Newsmageddon, which was this past week where we had so much news coming in and it was so hard to keep up with everything. So I just want to give you know, a basic understanding of what happened this past week. We had two Supreme Court rulings. One was about affirmative action, which really affected Texas 
and the nation as a whole, but it was re- with regard to the University of Texas at Austin. And then we had the whole immigration ruling. Um, we also had the Democratic Party ho- sit in on the House floor, which was about 25 plus hours. And then we had the big international news, which was Brexit. And I do want to discuss it um, because... I think it will affect Texas in many ways, even though we don't think that it will. But I'm going to start with the Supreme Court rulings. So in the first Supreme Court case, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld UT Austin's affirmative action system. A girl by the name of Abigail Fisher claimed that she was unfairly discriminated against because she was white. She was denied admission into UT Austin in 2008, and she argued in her lawsuit that minority students who were less qualified got in over her. UT Austin has defended its practice, saying that its narrow consideration of race stood up to legal scrutiny. According to the Texas Tribune, under the legal framework upheld on Thursday, universities are required to meet several legal tests to use affirmative action. They have to prove that the consideration of applicants' race serves an educational benefit, and they have to show that there are no race-neutral ways of achieving that goal. Abigail Fisher claimed that UT Austin failed to meet those expectations, and she stated that the state's race-neutral top 10% rule did a sufficient job of creating diversity at the university. And that the top 10% rule was so effective that it made affirmative action unnecessary for the other pool of applicants. Now, this statement or argument of hers brought in a lot of controversy, and of course, race became an aspect of it. So, a lot of other political news outlets are stating that there were quite a few students that got admitted that had lower um, scores than her. And there were, I believe, around 30 of them, and 26 of them were white, and then the other four were minority students. And that she didn't argue that she deserved a spot amongst all 30 of them. She argued that she deserved a spot amongst the four um, non-white students that were admitted. And that's where a lot of minority people became really angry. And if you are on Twitter or social media, there were several memes and hashtags going such as stay mad Abby or Abby with the bad grades. And she really caused a lot of anger amongst um, many people. For the Democratic Party, the majority of them celebrated this outcome. It was Justice Kennedy that wrote the the majority opinion on this case. And while he did have some critiques on it, it seems that affirmative action is um, legal for now. Now, I don't feel that affirmative action has been a very major controversial topic um, in this election cycle or recently in the past, but I do know that the top 10% rule has been a sensitive subject for many Texans. And that's also including the Desi community because many in the Desi community live in um, the really nice neighborhoods where it's very competitive to um, attain a top 10% spot for their child. And that top 10% rule becomes kind of a thorn on their side because their kid might have the best grades, but they're not readily admitted into UT Austin. So while I don't think affirmative action will gain any pushback in the Texas legislature or in... Uh, the U.S. 
uh, Congress, I do think that the top 10% rule in Texas could definitely face some pushback. And it's definitely been facing a lot of pushback since 2007. And I think that there could definitely be some legislation that might possibly go through that would um, basically get rid of the top 10% rule. So I think that's something that we can... um, predict that would happen for this 2017 Texas legislative session. Now let's move on to the next Supreme Court case, which of course affected Texas as well, the nation as a whole, but Texas was the one that brought this case. Um, It was the immigration case about President Obama's immigration actions. He had issued some executive actions and the state of Texas along with um, 26, it was a 26 state coalition and they challenged Obama's executive actions in court. President Obama's programs were initially blocked and they had an injunction on President Obama's initiatives. So it went up to the Supreme Court and it was a tie, four to four. And I had spoken about this way back when we had first heard about Merrick Garland as a Supreme Court nominee that what would happen after a ruling was made by the Supreme Court and it was a tie and they weren't able to make a determination because there's supposed to be nine on there and there's a vacant seat. And so it's always that if there's a tie that the lower court ruling would hold, and that's exactly what happened in this case, is that there was a tie, the lower court ruling where they had um, initiated the injunction on President Obama's executive orders would be upheld. And so I'm sure you're curious as to the details of what the case was about. So it was with regards to DAPA and DACA, and I'm sure that sounds very confusing, so I'm going to give a brief explanation as to the difference of those two. So according to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, um, on June 15, 2012, the Secretary of Homeland Security announced that certain people who came to the U.S. as children and met several guidelines may request consideration of deferred action for a period of two years subject to renewal. They are also eligible for work authorization. Deferred action is a use of prosecutorial discretion to defer removal action against an individual for a certain period of time. Deferred action does not provide lawful status. This policy was an American immigration policy that allowed certain illegal and undocumented immigrants who entered the country before their 16th birthday and before June 2007 to receive a renewable two-year work permit and exemption from deportation. And so the the controversy that came around it was many children, um, they came here illegally but they were very young and their parents brought them here. And, you know, as South Asians, we also know, like at least for my generation, who are first um, American Pakistani born, first generation Pakistani American or first generation Indian or Bangladeshi American, that when people tell us in racist remarks like, oh, you should go home, we don't know of Pakistan, India, or Bangladesh as a home, right? Like, we know that that's where our ancestral roots are from, but we consider America home. And that's what happened to many of these kids. Their parents may have brought them here illegally, but they've been, you know, living here for so long, and that for them to go back home, such as Mexico or any of the other Latin American countries where um, many of these kids have predominantly come from, they don't know of those countries as home because they're too young to remember them and they've, you know, acclimated to the American lifestyle and it'd be very difficult for them to go back to where they were born. 
Now that leads us to what DAPA is, and DAPA stands for Deferred Action for Parental Accountability. And this program was also announced in 2014, and this allowed for certain parents who met a certain criteria, such as the parent of a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident child on November 20th, 2014, the child can be a minor or adult, single or married, they have continuously resided in the U.S. since 2010 to present, They've been physically present in the U.S. since November 2014 um, or at the time of filing the application. They did not have lawful status. They've not been convicted of any crimes. And, you know, those are the basic requirements. And they can apply for and be granted the deferred action. And so the grant of deferred action under DAPA means that for a period of three years, you're no longer a priority for deportation and that you are also eligible to apply for work authorization in the U.S. And the purpose of DACA and DAPA combined was to make sure that these families were able to stay together. And immigration policy and reform has been such a touchy subject and controversial subject for the nation the past, I'd say, three, four election cycles. And I believe that President Obama's main goal and purpose in implementing these two actions was to ensure that families could stay together because you can sit there and talk about deporting millions and millions of people, but at the end of the day, whether you agree with it or not, that they have provided a huge source of wealth um, with regards to diversity in our state, whether it's regard to the economy in our state and our nation as a whole. And so since Congress was very much unwilling to work on an immigration plan, I believe President Obama took it upon himself to order this executive action, which legally was um, proper for the most part, or according to many political pundits, it is interesting to see that the, I guess, Supreme Court tied, and we don't really know that their reasonings are behind it, but we do know that at least 5 million people um, will be greatly affected by this. President Obama made a statement after the ruling came out, and according to um, Politico, he stated that today's decision is frustrating to those who seek to grow our economy and bring a rationality to our immigration system. I think it is heartbreaking for the millions of immigrants who have made their lives here. And according to Ken Paxton, who did a phone interview, interview with Politico, um, he stated that his legal team would head back to the trial court where the programs were initially blocked to seek a permanent injunction on President Obama's initiatives. And he stated that he thinks that the Constitution was upheld and this idea that there is a separation of powers, that no one person gets to make up the law, was upheld. And that's a great thing for America. I think overall this was a very disappointing moment for President Obama's presidency because while he tried to work things in Congress, it just became a deadlock, as with so many other um, bills and legislations he tried to pass. And the fact that the Supreme Court, which um, is eight people and they're missing one person and that Congress is very much, or actually the Senate is very much unwilling to meet with Merrick Garland so that they could have a nine-person Supreme Court and actually um, be able to have a tiebreaker on these type of very controversial issues is very disheartening uh, to the nation as a whole. Well, this doesn't mean that there will be a beginning of a, a new wave of deportations 
it does bring in the question of what's going to happen to the validity of these deferred action statuses and work permits that were issued to more than 700,000 immigrants in the past four years. I also think, you know, we've seen in the news how immigration has become such a touchy subject all across the world, especially with the refugee crisis and what's happening in Europe and especially with uh, Brexit that came about. And I think immigration is going to be another huge topic in the presidential debates. I'm not really sure how much formative policy Donald Trump will bring about to the debates or to the election. Um, But I think Hillary Clinton is one of those that's a firm supporter of DACA and DAPA. And that's something to be aware of and knowledgeable about when you are going to listen to her in the debates and talking about these different policies. And that is the basic gist of this Supreme Court ruling. So now moving on to the Democrat stage, sit in on the House floor to force gun vote. And Representative John Lewis from Georgia initiated this, and he is a civil rights icon. So in case you hadn't heard, it was a 26-hour sit-in, and I watched some of it on C-SPAN. Then there came to a point where C-SPAN was cut off. And if you are into technology, there is an app called Periscope where many of the legislators had their phones out and they were recording the sit-in. They were sitting on the floor. Many of them had bought sleeping bags and, you know, even slept there. It was absolutely unprecedented. It's something that we have never seen before, or at least in my generation, And it became pretty crazy. So what happened? It was led by Representative John Lewis and John Larson and more than 40 Democrats who walked in the chamber just before noon and pledged to occupy the House floor until the Republicans allowed a vote. In a matter of an hour, their numbers more than tripled and the Republicans recessed the House. And this is when the Democrats rep- and, their, and the representatives started to use their phones and cameras to record the sit-in and make sure that it became trending on social media. So you started to see many people on Facebook and Twitter um, posting about it. Now the bill becomes a sticky issue because while Democrats have been mostly an advocate for minorities, what they are trying to pass or trying to get a vote on is on a no-fly, no-buy bill, which would bar terrorist suspects on the no-fly list from purchasing guns. And so you had groups, um, civil liberty groups, such as the ACLU, um, that they made a statement where they stated that the use of error-prone and unfair watch lists is not the way to regulate guns in America. And I'm actually going to read excerpts from their letter that they sent to many of the U.S. congressmen about the ACLU's position on gun control and what, and this is how majority of um, civil liberty unions and a lot of the Muslim and Arab American communities felt about it. And I think this just encapsulates the feelings about this uh, type of legislation. So they stated that we believe that the right to own and use guns is not absolute or free from government regulation since firearms are inherently dangerous instrumentalities and their use, unlike other activities protected by the Bill of Rights, can inflict serious bodily injury or death. 
At the same time, regulation of firearms and individual gun ownership or use must be consistent with civil liberties principles such as due process, equal protection, freedom from unlawful searches, and privacy. Our nation's watchlisting system is error-prone and unreliable because it uses vague and overbroad criteria and secret evidence to place individuals on blacklists without a meaningful process to correct government error and clear their names. The government contends that it can place Americans on the no-fly list who have never been charged, let alone convicted of a crime, on the basis of a prediction that they nevertheless pose a threat, which is undefined, of conduct that the government concedes may or may not occur. Criteria like these guarantee a high risk of error, and it is imperative that the watchlisting system include due process safeguards, which it does not. In the context of the no-fly list, for example, the government refuses to provide even Americans who know they are on the list with the full reasons for the placement, the basis for those reasons, and a hearing before a neutral decision maker. Now, it's very intriguing to me that the Democratic Party would um, would be okay with legislation that would be impeding on someone's civil liberties while they're touting about that they're all for civil rights and making sure everyone's are protected. I'm not sure if they're using it as a ploy for because it's the election cycle and they have a way of saying, oh, look at these Republicans are bought by the NRA and they're unwilling to vote in for a bill that would that would stop potential terrorists from attaining guns. And it is also something to note that majority of the mass shootings that we see aren't from terrorists. They're from people who have mental issues or, you know, have an a sudden surge of anger and decide to do something about it. And that's why I I don't understand why they're not focusing in on that for the election season, because I'm sure that they knew it really wasn't going to pass and nothing was really going to happen about it. How much of it was achieved, nobody really knows. At least it did get a lot of media attention. And it also, ironically, got more attention than Donald Trump's speech where he was basically tearing Hillary Clinton apart in the type of person she is and her character. So maybe that was another reason why they did it. And now I'm going to briefly discuss two other Supreme Court rulings that just happened yesterday. Um, One of them really involved Texas. It was with regards to Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead. And if you remember, a couple of years ago, Senator Wendy Davis has had done a famous filibuster against HB2, which was regarding restrictions um, for abortion facilities. And the Supreme Court has overturned that Texas law requiring clinics that provide abortions to have surgical facilities and doctors to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. And the law was predicted to close many clinics and further reduce availability of abortion in Texas. And according to NPR, the Supreme Court has ruled the law violated the Constitution. For many of those groups and people that are pro-life, they considered this a huge victory and felt that Roe versus Wade, if you remember, was a major um, and main Supreme Court ruling with regards to abortion that this was a major victory and it was continuing to be upheld. And while that case was decided, um, they also had another ruling, which was um, a pretty big win for liberals, uh, not as big as the abortion ruling. But according to Vox, 
the Supreme Court have ruled that those convicted of domestic violence offenses can now be barred by federal law from buying or owning a gun for life, even if the conviction only demonstrates that someone acted recklessly violent as opposed to intentionally or knowingly violent toward a partner or a spouse. This touches on a very important issue um, with regards to America's gun problem. I've discussed it in previous uh, segments before. And I think this is actually a really big victory because there are many women that have been shot with guns uh, due to domestic violence. So I'm really hoping that this will help stop um, women from being killed in these very traumatic situations. Now let's move on to Brexit, which, as you all know, was the UK voting to leave the European Union, and it was a pretty shocking outcome that many people did not expect or did not see coming. So one of the major concerns um, for Brexit was immigration, and that many People in the UK were very upset with um, so many immigrants coming to their country. They felt like it was taking a lot of their jobs, and that was the reason why there were stagnant wages and that the economy wasn't growing because of it. And the reason why Brexit seems so important to Texas is for a variety of reasons and for the United States. But one of the reasons is that immigration is such a huge issue here as well. Like you see a lot of the Donald Trump supporters who are also against immigration and have a lot of xenophobia, Islamophobia. And it seems like these same sentiments um, is happening in the UK as well. So it's almost like a scary premonition for America that Donald Trump winning and the xenophobia that he spews could actually become a reality and that he could potentially become our president which is why this is so important to vote and make sure to get everybody out there to vote. And not only that, but we all found out that the pound, the British pound, had actually tanked in value. And if you want to know the amount of trade that Texas and the UK does, according to the Houston Chronicle, uh, Texas made $4.4 billion in sales to Britain in 2015, which was the 11th largest market for Texas exports. And Houston companies shipped about 16 billion in merchandise to 2015 so just over 10 percent or 1.7 billion of european exports went to the uk now how does this affect us in the long run well the uk is part of the e currently part of the eu and they have certain um, trade agreements and if the since the uk is intending on leaving those trade agreements don't carry over there could be different terms different conditions uh it will probably become more expensive. And many economists had predicted that if the UK was to leave the EU, it would cause a magnanimous um, ripple effect throughout the entire world. And we definitely saw that with the pound dropping. So it will be something to watch out for um, to see when and if the UK really goes through an exit seems like they're going to have some pushback. Even the prime minister um, had to resign and to see what is really going to happen um, in terms of their sales and their trades because that could greatly affect Texas and the U.S. as a whole. Now, I want to go back to kind of parallel the xenophobia topic I was discussing that we see is happening in the U.K. and here and how, um, you know, the prime minister of England had stated that he would have this referendum to 
vote in order to appease the right-wing um, faction of his party. And he actually put it to a vote. He, I don't think he was expecting that it would actually occur. He was part of the stay group, and but the rest of his party was against it, and so it's a big reason why he's resigned. Um, the main person who would be coming up to take his place is a former mayor of London. His name is Boris Johnson, and um, his hairstyle and um, demeanor are very similar to Donald Trump. It's almost like he's the British clone of Donald Trump, to be honest. Seems like they have the same rhetoric, same hairstyle, and and just hungry for attention. In fact, him and the people who campaigned to leave um, had made out these signs and postcards about how Turkey is planning to join the EU and that they have so many Muslims in their country and all of those people um, will try and come to London and there would be mo even more in immigration issues. And then, you know, when you listen to BBC and hear the people that they're interviewing about why they voted to leave and a lot of it ha had to do with the same thing, immigration, they didn't want more Muslim people coming in. And so we see this trend of Islamophobia just, you know, coming across in waves in all over the world or mostly in the Western world. And it's just a really scary concept. And so the reason why I'm discussing this and discussing the parallels because I really want to emphasize to everyone why voting is so important, why reaching out to your community is so important, because we should take and learn this lesson from England that, yes, while there will always be hateful people, while there will always be those that will not like immigrants, it is still our duty to get out there, to go vote, to become civically engaged. And if we don't do that, we're only going to harm ourselves in the long run. Well, speaking of civil engagement, I'm going to pivot to an event that is occurring this Eve on July 6th. It's the Voter Engagement Initiative. And one of my friends, Aisha Yuki, is attempting to find some volunteers who are willing to do a one to two hour shift on Eve's day at their local masjid, their Jamath Khanna, anytime between the hours of 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. They are trying to institute a nonpartisan voter engagement initiative, and their obje objective is to promote awareness of the voting and electoral process for this year's presidential election. And so I know I harp that everyone should become civically engaged and become involved. This is a prime way to do so. So if you are interested, um, there is a Facebook group or a Facebook event. It says Eats 2016 Voter Engagement Initiative. You can contact her at 972-898-1256. So I hope you all will try and reach out and try and become more civically involved and engaged. Let Brexit be a learning point for us and our community here in the U.S. And that's my segment for today. On a final note, I do want to add that starting next week, I hope to start answering to listeners' questions. So if there's anything from any of my segments that you have questions about or anything with regards to local and national politics that you may have questions about that I haven't addressed, please send me a message or email me. You can send me a message on my Facebook group or email me at wiseuptx at gmail.com. Again, don't forget to check out my social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
check out my website page at www.yzftx.com. And remember everyone, let's become educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Until next time.